Hello, everybody. My name is Sean Myers. I'm a pastoral resident at Redemption Arcadia. You've probably heard three or four times already this morning that Redemption, we're one church and we have, you know, different congregations and it's a little different maybe than what you're used to when I, when I say that. We don't mean satellite campuses or anything like that. We mean very specific congregations uh, where I have lead pastor, own elders and all that. And um, the reason that's important is because I'm, I'm doing a pastoral residency, a church planning pastoral residency at Arcadia, the Arcadia congregation. Um, my wife and I, we just moved to the west side. So I was here, I don't know, a couple months ago and I kind of shared my story uh, with you. And uh, just so you kind of know where I'm coming from, uh, I was born and raised here in the Valley. I did not grow up in a Christian home. Both my parents were drug addicts, actually, so very much the opposite of a, of a Christian home. And uh, I got saved in high school, met my wife in high school, and, uh, and just been kind of pursuing God since then. Uh, and, and the reason that's a big deal is because we were at a church. We, we ended up coming to Redemption and really moving in a direction and wanting to plant that church. And now we live over there, and, and things are, are really good, um, really, really great, um, except for today. Um, because today... Um, <laughs> Well, we get the awesome opportunity to talk about hard Bible texts. Now, um, I was talking with the guys in the back. Uh, this seems hilarious to you, but not so much to me. It seems like what happened is you guys tweeted in, text in, emails in, or whatever to your pastor questions. And, um, and then there's the questions that we want to address in these five weeks, right? And usually redemption's bread and butter is like go through books in the Bible. But we're doing it different at each congregation. This is what you guys chose to do. And Ricardo took the two easy ones in spiritual gifts and singleness. He gave Tyler marriage, Ben in times. And then he said, let's just gather all the hard texts in the Bible, give them to Sean, and I'll go on vacation. Um, so, so it's been fun so far. Uh, and, and, and yeah, so here, here's what I, where I want to start. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, can you just slip up your hand real quick? Um, some guys in the back will, will give you a Bible. There you go. Raise it up. You don't got to raise it. You can raise it nice and proud. You're in church. Like how often are you going to raise your hand up and ask for a Bible and be cool with it? Um, here's, here's what I, I, I want to say. Um, this is just, I mean, we, we got a lot, lots to cover, so I want to get to work right away. Um, I'm not a real linear dude, okay? Just the way that God has wired me, that's just not the way I am. Um, and what I mean by that is I love to kind of get a text and work through it and kind of understand it and not go through like, point after point after point. And unfortunately, because of the nature of what we're talking about today, um, the Bible you were just given, we're not really even going to open it to that text that was read till the very end of our time together, okay? So it's going to be, uh, a part of it's going to be like an exegesis class. This first part we're going to spend is this exegesis class. I just want to talk about how we address hard questions in the Bible, okay? Um, what we do, and maybe just reading in the Bible in general, and some of it will be old hat for you, but I just, I, I pray honestly that you just kind of listen and, and not let your eyes gloss over with that. Then I want to take an example, a question that was kind of brought to the forefront of all your other questions Ricardo asked me to touch on. Ricardo taught, taught about this a couple years ago, but I want to take the question that you guys had asked about in slavery and take one of those hard issues and use those principles and apply it and really begin to ask ourselves, okay, well, does the Bible promote slavery? Because here's the truth about um, the word of God and slavery. Nowhere does it condone it. Nowhere in the Bible does it say um, you can't do it at all, okay? So that's a, that's a tough issue for us um, and how we handle that. So I want to do that, and then I want to get to our text, okay? So... Um, yeah, let, let, let's get to work. And, and here's, here's what I want to do before we even do any of that. Uh, a couple, man, about a month ago, I was sharing, with this, uh, sharing this story with some friends at Arcadia. Um, about a month ago, um, on a Sunday uh, morning, church was done at Arcadia, and I go home, and there's a couple rules in the Myers household. Uh, number one is uh, mandatory naps on Sunday. We all snuggle together in the same bed. 
Okay, that makes sense. Um, and there's five of us, my wife and I and our three kids, okay? I'm a snuggler. Let's, I'm going to be straight with you. Let me be transparent, okay? Um, and, uh, and so we get home, we eat lunch, and it's nap time, okay? All of us, all right? And, uh, and we get home, and I, before we, you know, while we're eating, I just want to catch the, the score of the, the Miami Heat and the, the uh, Indiana Pacers game. The series had just started. It was game one. So we get home on church, uh, you know, from church, and we're sitting there. We, uh, eat, we're eat, eating food, and I just want to turn on TV real quick and check it out. And I turn on the TV, and the game's on channel 15, but um, the TV is on channel 10 right away. So it's so myself and the boys are just looking at the TV, right? And um, on channel 10 is the movie Men in Black, okay? Now, if you don't know what Men in Black is, it's this sci-fi action comedy, I don't know what else, um, movie with Tommy Lee Jones and Will Smith. It's about aliens. It's just this, I don't know, weird movie, right? Um, and so we, I turned it on, and it's on for like 15 seconds, okay? And if you've ever seen the, 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 this movie, um, it's the part where they're in this morgue, and this body that's kind of like a robot human body um, is laid out on this bed, and um, the face opens up, and there's this tiny little four-inch alien inside of this head, okay? And the alien's like, the galaxy's on Orion's Okay? If you haven't seen it, you have no idea what I'm talking about. So, um, so now my, my son, Titus, is four, um, and my oldest son, Corbin, is six. They're watching this, and Titus loses it, Okay? He, for the next couple days, is deathly afraid of this little alien that was inside of um, this guy's head. Now, my mom comes in on Wednesday, that following Wednesday, just to come hang out with us. Well, um, that Friday, she's like, you guys go out, we'll watch the kids. We'll just watch a movie together, okay? And I, we, so Candace and I go out, you know, I forget what we do. We, we come back, and, and I say, how was it? She's like, it was great. I said, what'd you guys watch? We watched a Lego movie. And she's like, but it's weird, you know, um, I asked Titus what, what he wanted to watch, and all he kept saying to me is, I don't like black men. I don't, I, I don't, I don't like black men, okay? And now I have to spend the next 15 minutes explaining why I'm not raising a little racist because my four-year-old son watched a part of a movie. He doesn't know the title of it. There's not a lot of information he has about it. And so he's come to a conclusion and I look like an idiot. Um, now here's, here's why I, I bring that up. Before we get into the hard text of the Bible, I want to talk about the Bible first. Okay. Um, I want us to get our, our mind around very quickly, just kind of a truncated version in history of how we got where we are, that you could literally just raise your hand and ask for a Bible, okay? Because it wasn't always like that. So here's what we know. By the end of the first century, as you flip to the New Testament and the Old Testament, the 27 books of the New Testament were complete. In Greek, on parchment paper, it's... Uh, uh, um, Anyway, it doesn't matter. It's this paper, right, that, that's plant-based. Um, it's on this paper, and it's sealed. And, and these letters, in the, all the churches that you read about in the New Testament, these letters, these tw- 27 books, are kind of put together with some Old Testament literature, the Old Testament and this Apocrypha um, book, which you don't have time to unpack right now. They're put together, and they begin to circulate in the churches that we read about in the Bible. And they're circulating. So the first century, the second century, the third century, they're circulating. Well, what happens is, in 382, a man named Jerome steps up on the scene. And he takes those Greek manuscripts, and he uh, basically transforms them or or, or translates them into um, Latin. Now, he calls this the Latin Vulgate, and the reason that is important is because they take the Latin Vulgate now, and in 500 AD, the church has been growing, and it went through persecution, but now it's unbelievably webbed in government. 
Okay? The emperor of Rome, Constantine, got saved because he saw a vision of a cross in the sky. And if you could have a man-made theocracy, this is what it would look like. So the church is heavily involved in the laws that are implemented to the people. And they say, no more reading the Greek manuscripts, no more reading any of those copies. The only translation that can be read is this Latin Vulgate. And it's not a half step further where eventually say, you know what, unless you have an MDiv or you're a priest or an archbishop, whatever it is, you can't read the Bible at all, okay? And this is in 500 AD. Now, hear me when I say this. For the next thousand years, the next thousand years, 1,000 years, the church has a monopoly on the word of God. Nobody's reading the word of God. They're hearing teachings about the word of God. They're hearing principles from the word of God, but nobody's reading it unless you're an archbishop or some way, a clergyman in the church. Now, this is a big deal because it doesn't take long for this to go awry, right? Because basically what you end up having is you have men who have a monopoly on the word of God and they are sinners and broken. And, and they begin to do things for selfish gain. And they create this idea of that, that uh, when you die, you go to this place called purgatory and you could go to heaven or you could go to hell. It's depending on how much you put in the offering, bro. Okay? And you yourself, y'all give you a piece of paper getting you right through that, but how much have you given? See, this church, it needs to be built. You see, Peter scully has been dead for a while. As long as you touch that and say 10 Hail Marys, you'll be okay. And suddenly, the principles of the Bible aren't exactly matching the principles of the Bible. But no one can do anything. No one can say anything because they're not reading the Bible. Now, this takes place until 13, the 1380s when a man named John Whitecliffe steps on the scene and he begins to translate the Bible into English. Okay, so we're in the 1300s. He translates the Bible into English, this growing modern or this growing uh, kind of common language of the time. Well, the church does not like this. And they find out there's this whole underground movement who was seeing what the church was doing and didn't like it. And so um, they, they, they begin to translate this Bible into English. Well, well, John dies, and the Pope is so angry at the work that he did. Hear me when I say this. He literally digs his body up, removes his bones, crushes his bones, and scatters them out to sea. He didn't like the guy. Okay? And so he, he does this, and, and now, now the work of, of, of what Wycliffe's doing in this moment doesn't stop because another John comes on the scene, John Huss, in 1415, and he continues this work of translating the Bible. Well, the church, again, doesn't like what Huss is doing, so they tie him to a stake, they light a fire under him, and they say, you're going to burn alive. Well, while Huss is burning alive, he yells with a voice, in a hundred years, somebody's going to come along whose reforms can't be silenced. This was in 1415. In 1517, 102 years later, a man named Martin Luther takes 95 theses, 95 problems that he sees um, with the church, and he nails it to the church door. And one of the things that that Martin Luther is also doing uh, during this time is he's taking the Bible and he's translating it into German for all people to read. Now you have um, William Tyndale and Martin Luther. William Tyndale is another guy who's around the same time as Martin Luther, who's, who's using the Gutenberg Press that was just invented um, and mass-producing English Bibles while Luther is translating the book into German and, and uh, bringing out German Bibles for modern, uh, or modern, for uh, people of the time to, to read this uh, book that is, they've been, you know, enthralled with and told things about, suddenly they're reading it, okay? Well, in the 1500s, King Henry VIII um, loves this book so much that he has it chained to every pulpit in England. Okay, this is really, really very important for us to understand. And people are coming in the droves to hear it. For the first time in a thousand years, 
the average man can walk into a church and hear, not just hear about, or not just learn lessons from, but hear the word of God spoken. And they can't get enough of it. They can't get enough of this. In the 1600s, we get the King James Version Bible. A lot of you have heard of that. And, and, and since then, I mean, what? The rest is what we would call history, right? I mean, we have unbelievable amounts of translations. It's been translated more than any other book in the Bible to so many different languages. It's just amazing. And all you had to do in that moment was raise your hand and ask for it. But it wasn't always like that. Some of you were too even scared to raise your hand. All you did was move your thumbs and download an app. I mean, the truth is that we take for granted what people have given their life for. Now, here's the reason I start um, with this, okay? Um, These people don't go to the stake or are crucified upside down or forsake family and friends because they like the Bible, because they're okay with it. Yeah, it's like 50 Shades of Grey. I kind of listen to the audio. No, they read this thing. They studied this thing. And hear me when I say this. They were brilliant. William Tyndale actually was uh, uh, noted in, in knowing eight different languages. Eight languages. Now you say, well, there's a lot of people who know. No, listen. It's reported that he knew these eight languages so well, people actually didn't even know what his native tongue was. Like, he knew these, language. he was, these languages. He was unbelievably fluent in these languages. These were brilliant men. So this is what I need you to get. Brilliant men who loved their Bible. That is possible. Do you understand? So as, as, as a skeptic or somebody who's like, well, yeah, it's just you, you, you believe in the Bible, but all these contradictions. Listen, these people have come across this. You, you're not a trailblazer in, in this area. Like you're not the first person to ever be like, you see how it says that about that. People have thought through this. In 1660, there's a publication that came out in London with a, um, a last guy, his, his name was Thomas Mann, and he published this book, 3,000 Bible Contradictions Answered. This was in 1660. This is like, this is, uh, this is pre-enlightenment. This is before any of these things. So they were well aware of what we would call contradictions, okay? They were smart men who loved their Bible desperately. Let me read a quote from you. Um, a guy named John Rogers, he's a, he's a Puritan. Um, phenomenal quote. Uh, and this is what it says, just so you understand the depths of their love for, for the word of God, because I think it helps a lot. Lord, whatever you do to us, take not thy Bible from us. Kill our children, burn our houses, destroy our goods. Only spare us the Bible Take not away thy Bible. So when you make a statement, you can have my kids, but don't take my Bible. You like this book. You've studied this book. You've invested your life into this book. So brilliant men deeply, deeply care and have studied well the Bible and believe it. So before we get into hard text, I want to put that in front of you. And know, um, as a Christian, you don't need to feel like you need to be on the defense. And um, if you're not a Christian in here, just know, just, just put that in the forefront of your mind. Um, maybe you might be wrong. And I don't mean that to be, like, mean in any way. Maybe you're wrong. Maybe, maybe you're not seeing it. Just a thought. So here's what we're going to do. Um, like I said, I'm, I'm not a, a note guy where I can just stare at these notes. This is the most notes I've ever written in my life. Um, um, and, and here's why, why I want to do it. Um, we're we're going to go through some things that for us as Christians, we can kind of read through and, and understand uh, how do we get through hard text. And I hope to help you and address some of the questions that you had along the way. Um, but before we do, I, I, if you can, if you have a Bible, um, which everything I just said, you better have a Bible now. Um, John 6, I want to read something to you. Because I, I think this is important for us to, to pick up in understanding how we go about this and where our heart needs to be. In John 6, chapter, uh, chapter 6, verse 52, this is what it says. Then the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? 
Okay, hear what ha- this is the this is so this is bizarre. So Jesus says to them, "Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of my, of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day." For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Okay, let's be straight. That's weird. Okay? Um, It's so weird, his disciples actually call him over in verse 60, and they're like, hey, Jesus, what the heck are you talking about right now? Okay? It's so bad, actually, in verse 66, they end up, some, some disciples end up departing from him. They end up leaving him. That this was a hard saying for them. They couldn't get around it. So I, I want us to start there because here's, there are hard things in the Bible. That is obvious. But the first point, and here's what I want, where I want to start. The first point that I want to make for you to understand any hard text where you need to go, and that has everything to do with reliance. Before you read the Bible, you, you need to pray. And don't let your heart go, duh. No, listen to me. Um, if we believe that, that the word of God is inspired, when we use terms like that, it's obviously a book that is um, beyond the natural, right? Okay, so how about this? In, in 1 Corinthians 2, we're actually told the deep things of God, only the Spirit knows. We're told in John 16 that the Spirit of God will lead us unto all truth. So if you just pick up your Bible right now, it's just words. There's nothing special about the word the. There's nothing special about the word strange. There's nothing special about the words that are in here. There's nothing special about that. God doesn't speak English. Okay, so for us to like process it, this is what it is, this is how it is, because those words end up making sentences and those sentences end up making paragraphs. And here's the truth. They're not special. There's nothing in that that can do anything for you unless the spirit does something. Ephesians 1 tells us the eyes of our understanding need to be enlightened. This is maybe why your, your atheist roommate reads the Bible and does not get the same things you get. Maybe this is why, as you as a non-Christian, don't get the same things um, that the Christian gets. Because the truth be told, it is just another book without the Spirit giving it life. Without the Spirit opening your eyes so that you can see the depths of what it is, the beauty of what it is, the poetry that is in there. It's just a book. So for us to skip this idea of, God, help me. I, I need to know what you're saying right now. It's not something we can just gloss over. Pray. Okay, the next three things are um, a little more practical, okay? So when we pray, obviously it deserves its own screen. Um, when we pray, uh, the, the second thing that we can do practic- practically is we can begin to ask, what's the background? And another word for this is, what's the context, okay? Now, um, this, is, this may seem like an exegesis class, like, okay, it's, but I hope this helps in one way or another. Here's what I'm going to say to you. Um, the way that polygamy is viewed uh, in first century Asia is not the way polygamy is viewed in... 8th century Europe is not the way polygamy is viewed in 16th century Africa is never the way polygamy is viewed in like sister wives, right? Okay, so um, all those, all, the way that polygamy is viewed is different. So which leads us to believe when we read polygamy, the word polygamy in the Bible, we all have preconceived notions when we, that we bring to the text. Now this is a big deal because we have to begin to ask the question, well, what is polygamy like in the culture in which it's being preached? Let me give you a, a great example of why this is important. I want you to imagine that you're watching a news station. I don't know. It's like 9 o'clock at night. You're watching Channel 10 or um, if you're liberal NBC. And you're watching the, the, the news station. And you're watching this. And you see that there's this killer on, this, on, on the loose. Or at least he was. He was just caught. And he's going around and he's murdering anyone who is not American. Okay? So you have this racist bigot. 
um, going around committing these unbelievable hate crimes, and he's just killing anyone who's not born in America. You were born where? Not in America? Dead. Mass killings of people, of gatherings of other countries, just killing them in cold blood. Now you watch that news uh, uh, station in that moment, you watch this story unfold, and you yell out with your fist in the sky, that man deserves justice. And you are right. He deserves to be punished. And you are right. That's not okay that you would go around killing people like that. And you're right. But let's say we continue to watch this story unfold. And a week later, you come to find out that this 21-year-old man was uh, kidnapped when he was five years old, taken from his parents. And every single day for 16 years, propaganda was put in front of this little kid of why America's the best, why all other countries are awful, why we should root for America, show them NASCAR races, whatever it is, and here's what it is, here's why America's awesome, here's why all the other countries are, are, are terrible, here's why they need to be eliminated, here's why they need to be killed. Every single day for 16 years. Now suddenly you're watching this and you're like, okay, he deserves to be punished. It's not right what he did, um, but we, we gotta fix this. I mean, like, Whoever did this to him, we need to find him because how this played out is, is not okay. Like, that, that's not okay. Well, well, let's continue on because we've just gone from being actively against to kind of like passively against. He deserved to be punished. Maybe some people now are saying, well, he can be reformed, whatever it is. Well, let's say you continue to watch this, and a month later, you find out that it was your five-year-old son that was kidnapped. You had a kid that was kidnapped when he was five years old, and you find out that this boy, who's now 21 years old, was your son suddenly it's like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. If I would have had him when he was five, I don't even remember what I believed when I was five, but you, he was tricked. That's not fair. That's not fair. Like, he was tricked. It's not his fault. He was put um, in front of televisions that sold him propaganda and, and, and lies. It's just, it's not, just let me talk with him. Let me try to appeal it. Let me just do this. Suddenly we go, because we know the background, to being actively against, to passively against, to kind of actively in some ways pass, or, uh, passively in some ways actively for. All because we know the background of the story. In some ways it's because it's personal, right? It, it truly affects us. And, and I think this is the truth when we come to the Bible. Like, to understand what's really going on, you guys, changes everything. And this is going to help a lot of you who ask questions about some of the weird stuff that goes on in the Old Testament. Hear me. There's weird stuff that goes on in the Old Testament, okay? Ricardo had brought up one of the ideas, but there's a story in 1 Kings where this man named Elijah, who's usually kind of a calm dude, um, is walking down the street, 42, um, 42 youths um, are, are, um, are you know, looking at him, and they begin to make fun of how he's bald. And he's a calm dude. Well, this dude, dude's B.A. also because he turns around, and he says, Hey, you talking to me? Yeah, I'm going to talk. Okay. And he just calls out two bears to eat these 42 kids. And you're reading it, and you're going, What was that? And then it just goes on to the next story. And you're like, What? Okay, that's weird. That's just weird. And like, you just read these stories. Samson... He just kills people for no reason. We love to celebrate how Samson was so strong. This dude loses bets, doesn't want to pay up, and just murders people. And it's like, and the Lord was with him. Well, yeah. Okay, like, it's, it's just as you read these stories in the Old Testament, you're like, I have no idea what's going on. And if you begin to understand the times and in the, in way, uh, the ways in which God is, is moving and using, protecting his holiness very specifically in that time, um, it just it changes our mindset. Us understanding the background. I wish I had more time to even unpack that story because I think it will help us um, a lot understanding times. But the truth is asking the question about background, asking the question about context is a really, really big deal. So I, I don't want you to 
ever kind of just bring the American mentality. The truth is, um, a lot of kids being raised up in school don't know what's going on in the rest of the world because we're so isolated. So you know your story very well. I would, I would just challenge you to know the Bible story very well. Here's another thing that I, I think will help. Um, so you're going to pray, you're going to have context, and then um, you, you eventually need to begin to ask, and I thought this was going to be a subpoint, authorial intent. Now it sounds like the same thing, but um, hear me when I say this. There's a, there's a set meaning in what the Bible is saying. Uh, John Piper, he is, uh, you may have heard of Desiring God. Uh, he, he's a pastor before at a different church. In their statement of faith, something he wrote out, which I think will help us a lot, says something to this end, um, and I just want to read it to you real quick. This is what it says. This is in their statement of faith, um, Bethlehem Baptist Church. We believe God's intentions are revealed through the intentions of inspired human authors, even when the author's intention was, not, uh, was to express divine meaning in which they were not fully aware, as, for example, in the case of some Old Testament prophecies. Thus, the meaning of Bible text is a fixed historical reality rooted in the historical, unchangeable intentions of its divine and human authors. Hear what he's saying. There is a fixed set truth to what the Bible is saying. That's true, okay? Divine um, and human authors. However, while the meaning, so while meaning does not change, the application of that meaning may change in various situations. Nevertheless, it is not legitimate uh, to infer a meaning from a biblical text that is not demonstrably carried about by the words in which God inspired. So um, for, for us to understand what, what the author is really trying to communicate is a big deal because he has a point, um, and that truth is there, but it's, it's applied differently. And for those of you who ask questions about head covering, so I'm trying to uh, justify or at least show um, how we can tackle some of these hard issues. Some of you ask some questions about head covering in 1 Corinthians. Um, the reason that Paul's going about this, it's not pushing an agenda. Read it in the context and read what he's trying to, to put there. Um, what he's trying to press is submission. Husbands and wives, whether you like that or not, husbands and wives to be in submission, husbands to be in submission to Christ, wife, uh, to Christ, wives to be in submission to their husbands. And he's using head coverings, which is a very cultural idea at the time. And we can see that the author, Paul in that moment, is not trying to push head coverings. He's trying to push submission. So we get mixed up in the semantics there and the application of what he's trying to apply. And, and I think I can say that in all integrity. I think that's what's taking place there, okay? So for us to, to understand the, the author has a set, fixed idea is, is a really big idea. And, and can I say this too? Um, maybe a lot of you aren't familiar with the Greek language, but I, we get this question a lot as pastors. Why don't we just have a Bible that's word for word, okay? And the reason we don't have the Bible, uh, a Bible that is just word for word is because we would be talking like Yoda because there's no sentence structure in Greek, okay? So what you have is you have translations who are like thought for thought. And, and the reason that is, is because they're trying to communicate the author's intent. There's a poetry to the Greek language. Okay, he's saying this, but what he's trying to communicate is this. And then you have these closer to word for word, these ESV Bibles that are, are closer, and, and maybe they're, okay, we hear what he's saying, but we're going to say what it's saying here. And so that's why there's a difference when it comes to that. That's why there's a big difference when it comes to that. So just so you can understand, the author intent is a big deal. And I don't mean to bore you, but let's continue to go on with all this. Here's the other thing. You really got to begin to ask the question, you guys, what does the rest of Scripture say? Like, interpret Scripture through Scripture. Because that's what's going to do it for you. Um, Jim Mullins, he had shared a story about a month ago about a guy named Joshua Bell, who's a violin, uh, violinist, and he's playing in D.C. Metro Station um, in D.C., and he, he's playing this in the subway station. He's playing a violin, and, and the night before, his tickets had gone for hundreds of dollars. He actually sold the violin for $3.6 million, and people are just walking by him as he plays the violin. Because the truth is, we see one man standing in a subway, and we say, he's just a, he's just a subway performer. And we don't begin to ask the question, what else is going on? Maybe he's legit. And that's what we do. We eisegete, that's the term, we eisegete a text, and we say, ah, oh, slavery, 
God's a bigot and hates everyone. And because we read one verse and we eisegete and we don't ask what the rest of the Bible is saying. This is a, a big problem that I think we have more than anything else and we'll come back to in a second. Here's the last thing. Um, I'm trying to fly through these. The, the last thing is this. You got to know your place. And I know that sounds demeaning, but, but hear me when I say this. Um, Ecclesiastes 5 says that he is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. 1 Corinthians 13 actually tells us that um, right now we only know in part. So no matter what Elmo has told you when you were a kid that you can do anything, the Bible is not something to conquer. We, we can't look at the Bible and the American mentality is, and I have domination over it, and I'm going to figure everything out. That's not the Bible. That's not what it is. We have to begin to understand that in the end, Deuteronomy 29, 29, the mysterious things belong to God. And that's just the truth. And you to be okay with that. Like for us to look at the Bible and say, and there's just weird things that I, God, I'm trying to figure out. And maybe in your lifetime, he will reveal them to you. But maybe not, because you only know in part. I mean, you, you read a story in 1 Samuel about this, this witch of Endor, and it's weird. If you want to Google the witch of, you want to read a weird story in the, in the Old Testament, the witch of Endor is weird. And you're like, I have no idea what's going on here. And I, listen, I'm standing on stage. I still have no idea. Like people disagreed for centuries about what that's taking place, okay? Be okay with understanding that there is mystery to this thing. And that's okay. You want to get like, where did evil come from? The Bible doesn't tell us, man. Be okay with that. You know in part, there will be a day when you know in full. Know your place. I'll never forget um, when I think about this, this um, whole process uh, when I first got saved, I had read the book of um, John uh, like 40 times. And I read through it, and I had no idea what this thing was saying. Um, and I'm reading through it, reading through it. So eventually I decide I'm going to start from the very beginning. And I read the, through Genesis, and I, I get to the story of Noah. A lot of you guys have heard this. It's when Russell Crowe builds this ark. And he's building this ark. And, and as he builds this ark, eventually the flood comes, and then it, uh, he stays on it, and somebody sneaks on the boat. It's really weird. Um, and so then eventually it subsides. And, and what, what happens is um, you see Noah and his family get off the ark, and then God gives them this rainbow and basically says, hey, um, whenever you see this rainbow, know that it's a promise from me to you that I'll never flood the earth again. I remember reading that and going, no. Are you, I call up the guy who's discipling me as a pastor. I'm like, did you know every time we see a rainbow, that's God's promise to us? And he's like, yeah, I did know that. I'm like, no, you didn't, you idiot. And I hang up the phone. I didn't do that. Um, I just wanted to sound cool to impress you guys. Um, okay, so, but, but here's the truth. I remember being amazed about w- what's taking place and seeing this and God opening my eyes and really beginning to see what's taking place. But sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes we kind of read a story and we're like, I don't know what's going on here. But can I just encourage you in this direction? Um, the more you read, the more time you spend with God, I promise things begin to get more clear. So I, read, I said I read John umpteen times when I first got saved. I feel like I can go through the book of John. I've taught through the book of John before. Because things begin to make sense. The Spirit continues to be good and gracious to me in those areas. So um, I wholeheartedly believe these five things, prayer being the most important thing, will answer every single hard text in the Bible. And what I mean by that is because that last point, there are texts where we're like, man, I see what's going on, but it's a mystery to me. And I don't mean a contradiction. As Christians, we need to be careful. I hear that a lot. Well, it's a contradiction. I'm okay with it. No, we're not okay with that. God is is not uh, contradicting himself, okay? So no matter, as a skeptic, you've heard, that's just not the case. Um, I don't have time to unpack that. So I hope that helps. Now here's what I want to do. I want to kind of switch gears, um, and this may be a little bit awkward to you, but I want to take these five points, and I want to apply them to one of the main questions that came up, okay? Like I said, so so it's slavery, okay? So we're going to kind of switch gears here, and here's what I want to say. When I first got saved, um, I was sitting with, with my buddy, 
And you got to understand my story. Um, just the nature, whether you like it or not, I grew up in very low-income places in the valley. Um, and the truth is, again, whether you like it or not, in those low-income areas, there's a lot of Hispanics and a lot of black kids. And so I grew up with all of my friends being Hispanic and black, going through grade school, middle school, whatever it is. And, um, and, and the reason that's a big deal is because in high school, <clears throat> my buddy Reggie, he's a black dude, we are sitting there. We'd just been saved. We're trying to follow Jesus. And we're reading um, a passage in the Bible that we just heard from a movie. Somebody said in this movie how, how the Bible promotes slavery. And we read it, and it totally, like, it felt like it did. I don't even remember the text that we read. And we're like, oh, my gosh, this is, like, we're, and we're so, and I'm sitting there kind of torn. Like, so this isn't kind of just an off-the-cuff thing. It's very personal. Like, I remember thinking, man, most of my friends are black. Like, and, we're, and I'm sitting here reading, not understanding, how on earth am I going to handle this? Well, maybe it's just an old text. I don't know what to do uh, with it, and, and, and it's just kind of, I'll just ignore that part. I honestly had no idea what to do. So I think it's a legitimate question, um, and, and I really want to answer it, and I, I want to beef up uh, the problem even more. Here, here's a couple things. Um, I said this before, but there is nowhere in the Bible that says slavery is wrong. That's true. So whenever your skeptic or atheist friend says, the Bible promotes slavery, and like, no, well, it never says it's wrong, you can't sit there and say, yes, it does, because because there's no Bible, no Bible verse. That's a unicorn. It doesn't exist. There's nothing out there, okay, that says that. But um, we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. Um, and, and not only that, I, I want to add a couple other verses to really make this hard text uh, very heavy for us. So, so let me read some things to you. Um, human beings are considered to be property uh, in the Bible. This is found in Exodus 12, 44, Exodus 21, 20 through 21, and Leviticus 22. Slaves, slaves within Israel were used to produce offspring for their infertile owners. You can see this in Genesis 16, Genesis 30, and Genesis 35. Sexual violation, rape of an engaged slave, the man was, uh, who was accused of rape had to make a payment um, to the person who was raped and her fiancé, whereas if the same thing occurred, the perpetrator was to be stoned to death. So there's a little bit of inequality. If, if, if a slave was raped, you had to pay that slave money and her fiancé money. But um, if, if a free a woman was raped, you had to be stoned to death. So th- this is an issue, right? Slave owners were uh, permitted to beat their slaves without any penalty, provided that the slaves survived. That's tough. Uh, there's constant biblical le- legislation that contains inequality uh, in the value placed on a slave's life compared to a free man's life. That is in the Bible. That's true. That's in the Bible. Yes, it's quiet. <laughs> That's tough. What, what do we do with this? So here's what I want to say. Um, wh- if we take those five ideas and we begin to process, okay, God, I don't know what to do with this because I'm reading this and it seems like you're not very good in this. It seems like I don't know what's going on. Here's where I want to start. Um, 99% of the confusion or 99% of the thing that is taking place, I know Ricardo talked about this a couple years ago, um, has everything to do with defining of terms. And so here's what I mean. We see in the movies um, a man looking at a woman after eight weeks and saying, I love you. Or maybe you have said that to your week-long boyfriend. Um, Okay? Uh, Yet anybody who's been married for any length of time, let's say 10, 15, 20 years, says to their spouse that that very same word. Honey, I, I love you. So Candace and I have been married for eight years. I tell Candace I love her. I'm doing premarital counseling with this, um, this couple, and they've, they've been uh, dating for about two years now. And she has a sister who's been dating this guy for a month, and she's told him she loves him, whatever. Okay? Um, now, he, uh, hear me when I say this. I'm not trying to be rude. But the way I'm telling my wife I love her is not the, the same way that she is telling her boyfriend that she loves him. It's not. We're using the same, the same word, but it means something completely different. Now, I've only been this, in this game for eight years, but there's some of you have been married for 35 years, and the way you tell your spouse you love them is 
way different than the way she's saying to him. It's way different. Yet you're using the same word. So, so here's where I want to start. You've got to, hear me when I say this, you have to remove the idea of colonial slavery being the same thing as slavery in the Bible. It's the same word, but hear me, it is not the same thing. It is way different. I want to give you a couple things uh, to, to help you that it's different. Here, here's the first thing. Um, colonial slavery in the 1700s, 1800s is way different in that there is um, very specifically one race that can be associated. Maybe, and for, for, for the most part, we, we see African Americans being slaves. And, and, and maybe a little bit, there, there could be some Asian slaves, but, but here's what we know. Walking down the road in the late 1700s, um, and you saw a black man, you did not think that he was in business. That's not something that took place. You knew that he was a slave. Okay? This is not the case in the Bible. This is just not true. Slavery had nothing to do with economic, socioeconomic, cultural, the way you wore your clothes. It had nothing to do. Literally, your brother could be your slave. Your sister could be your slave. It had nothing to do with race at all. This is a big difference. And it's the building block. And because here's the truth. The second thing that you absolutely need to know is the cultures were the exact same in the Bible when it comes to biblical slavery, um, uh, uh, the, the slave and the master, the cultures were exactly the same. Here's what I mean. When we read about colonial slavery in the 17 and 1800s, we read about the white man has his church, the white man has his kids in the way he raises them, the white man has his language, his culture. The black man has his church. The black man, the way he talks to God is different. The way the black man does this is different. The way he raises his kids is different. It's way different. Way, way different, but this is not the case in the Bible. In the Bible, we see over and over and over again that the the cultures are so similar. And so this is a big deal to us because we don't begin to associate racism uh, immediately with slavery, which is a big deal to us. Bigotry, which we think is slavery. The Bible's automatically, the background, understanding the context, is immediately removing these ideas, okay? Now, we still struggle with the issue, right? Like um, that they're property or whatever it is, okay? Well, here's the other thing, the third thing. Um, Slaves were super educated, and they had ample opportunities for promotion. Let me give you two examples. Um, a man named Daniel, he's, he's taken in slavery. Him and, and a big part of not just his family, but his people are taken into slavery. And he rises in the ranks, eventually standing before the king. Joseph, um, in Genesis, this is a crazy story. Joseph, as a slave, is second in command in Egypt. Okay, he, as a slave, he's the vice president of Egypt. Did you... you that, that is not colonial slavery. That is not the way we process slavery. So there's clearly something different the way the Bible talks about it. So when it says it does not say you can't do it, well, there's something different, isn't there? This is a big deal. Here's the fourth thing. Um, and this, this, I hope this helps. Um, this was a, a, a gift of God in a broken world, um, uh, mind you. This is a, a gift from God, a gracious, good gift from God, um, and a good honest economic decision for the man and his family sometimes that we read about in the Bible. So here's what I mean. If, if I owe you $10,000 and you look at me and say, dude, you owe me 10 grand. And I say, here's the deal, man. Um, I can't pay you $10,000, but I will serve you, which mind you in the Greek uh, slave and servant is the same word. Um, I will serve you for six years. Let me serve you for six years and pay off my debt. I'll just, I'll pay, I'll, I'll work this. My family will, will do it, will, will, will serve you and do this. Well, I'll live here, I'm here, but I'll come here every single day and I'll, I'll pay off my debt. 
This was a good economic decision uh, sometimes for them. So much so, and you've got to really begin to process um, this because when we read in Deuteronomy 15, uh, we see a crazy idea of a man. You know what? Let me read it for you because I think it helps. Um, a man who is told, they have this, this year of, of, of jubilee. They have this seventh year where um, basically anybody who's a slave is set free. So no matter how long you've been in slavery, six years, hit that seventh year, you're set free. So a lot of the Negro spirituals, you hear about these people singing about the year of jubilee. You hear, about, you hear about them singing, saying, over and over again, we're going to be free. God's going to rescue us on the day of glorification. Well, it's a big deal for them because they're reading about how slavery is way different in the Bible. Let me read Deuteronomy 15 uh, to you just just to help a little bit. In in verse 12, this is what it says. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman is sold to you, he shall serve you six years and in the seventh year, you shall let him go free. Already a big deal. So so for them, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Like they know this is not a long-term thing. They're going to serve and do what they need to do, pay off whatever debt it is, and they're going to be done. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock and out of the threshing floor and out of your winepress as the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall give to him. So this is a big deal because in that seventh year, you're not just like, okay, you served your purpose. This is way different because now we're told that they are to take some of their cows, some of their sheep, some of their wine, some of their food and say, go. Man, go start a business. Go do what you need to do. Maybe get your own servants. Go. And you're to give out of this. That is not colonial slavery. But it even steps it up a notch because it, 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 to show that it's different, sometimes um, this was absolutely motivated by love, which is completely different. No one in the 1700s was ripped um, from, from their homeland, uh, put on a ship, most of them dying on the way um, because they loved what they were doing. That just wasn't the case. But that's not true for the Bible. Uh, let me prove it to you. This is sometimes what would happen. You shall remember, this is verse 15, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. But if if he says to you, talking now about the slave, I will not go out from among you. This is the slave saying to him, I won't go out from among you because he loves you and your household since he is well off with you. And then he goes on to tell how he could play that out. But here's what I want you to catch. You say, all right, man, seventh year, you've served, you've done a great job, you're free. Go do what you need to do. Okay? And the man looks at him and says, bro, my kids have grown up with your kids. Like my wife loves hanging out with your wife. I, I love being with you. I love being with your family. You take care of us. I, wa- I want to keep doing this. It sounds like a job that you end up really coming to like. It sounds like a friend being made. Uh, now, here, here's what's crazy about this. Um, if you continue to roll the clock around, uh, uh, along, um, we're told that as Christ enters on the scene, that he's a fulfillment of the law. So things like this, when we process slavery, even in Hebrews 10.1, we're told that the Old Testament is a shadow of the New Testament. It's a shadow of the gospel, what's taking place. So whatever discrepancies we read about in the Old Testament, there's a consummation of how um, this is really different, or at least how we're to treat this whole deal um, in the New Testament. And in the book of Philemon, um, Paul is writing this letter to Philemon, this man, and he's come across, Paul's come across this slave who wasn't a Christian, and, he, and it comes up to basically introducing him to Christ. Well, he's writing Philemon because he's sending this servant or this slave back to Philemon. And I want you to hear the language in which Paul uses in the New Testament, kind of showing us, giving um, us a direction how we can begin to process this. This is what he says. No longer, talking about I'm sending him back, I'm sending him back, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant. So the word bondservant is the same where we get bond slave. No longer as a bondservant, but as a beloved brother especially to me, but how much more to you, both in flesh and in the Lord? That is a big deal. 
And it may not seem like it, but hear me when I say this. Now suddenly Philemon, when he begins to uh, process the law of Christ, we can see into Philemon's heart that he understands as a believer, he's to look at this man who's serving him. He's to outdo him in love. These are the the commands uh, of grace. He's to outdo him in love. He's to outdo him in honor. He's to outdo him in service because he's a brother in Jesus Christ. This is way different Understanding the background helps us see that this is not the same. You can use love, the word love all you want in one way, but for this person, they're using the same word. It means something different. We can use the word slavery in our American mentality, but it is not the same word for slavery in the Bible. You know what's very frustrating yet kind of comical and ironic with this whole process? Um, It was guys like John Newton and William Wilberforce who abolished slavery in London. And so, so if you don't know who these guys are, these are two hardcore Christians who looked at the Bible and said, this is not okay what we're doing in the West. How we're handling these men, it's not okay. It was people looking at the Bible, giving 50 years, 60 years, 70 years of their life, their income, their friends, their family, to the point of death, fighting this thing because they went to the Bible and said, that's not okay. Yet we have the audacity to point our finger and say, look at the Bible. It totally supports this. Yet these men didn't believe this. Bro, who do you think, like, at the end of the day, Martin Luther, you think he's some uh, humanist who just loves human rights for the sake of loving human rights? When you listen to this dude's speeches, which, by the way, 90% of them were sermons, okay, the main premise of why he's arguing for his cause is the gospel. So for us to look at this and say, that's not right how Christians handled that, or that's not right what Christians believe, it was Christians who abolished the thing, bro. It was Christians who came at this and, and said, that's not okay. That's the irony of the whole argument. That, that, that the skeptic or the atheist will look and see, see how the Bible promotes slavery, and yet over and over our history tells us otherwise. It's, it's, it's crazy to me. It, it's crazy for us to even begin to process how backwards that got so quickly. Because the Bible doesn't promote what took place. It's a black eye in America, and, and, and I hope Christians totally embrace that idea because it wasn't right, and it's totally not what the Bible supports. Why don't we get to our text? In 2 Peter, let me close with this. In 2 Peter chapter 3, uh, we have our text there, and th- this is what it says. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all of his letters when he speaks in them of these things. There are, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. There's a lot in this. I wish I had time to unpack it, but first thing, just a side note. Notice that he refers to Paul's letters, um, Paul's letters as the rest of scripture, which this is a crazy process, but we don't have time to, to get there. But here's what I want you to notice in this, because um, that first verse can seem like a throwaway, but it's not, because um, I want you to see that it's the, it's the hard things as Christians that we have to begin to process in the Bible that the unstable and ignorant twist. It's not the easy, easy things. It's the hard things. It's the things that we look at and say, man, this is tough. I, I am struggling with this a little bit. And the ignorant and twist, uh, the, the ignorant, unstable twist, those things. So, so to the Christian, let me say this. I mean, you you got to be okay with understanding that that's the approach that's going to be taken. That there are hard things in the Bible. It, it just admitted it. And the, the unstable um, and ignorant twist those things for their own gain, to be honest with you. Verse 17 says this, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Verse 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Here's what's crazy about 17 and 18. 
Um, you may have heard this, Ricardo say this before, but it's a Tim Keller quote. Um, and I want to say this because I feel like this is what it's promoting. And as Christians, we need to major in the major things. We don't need to major in the minor things. So if you don't know what I'm talking about, when, when you go to sign up um, in any type of college or university, um, we need to major. Our major needs to be in the, the important big things. We don't need to major in whether creation was actually 24 seven-day periods. Like, that's not something we need to major in. I'm not saying it's important. I'm just saying we don't need to spend all of our time, and, and as the Bible would say, we don't need to be carried away with it. So, so we're, we're looking at this. This is what he is, the witch of indoor. Let me try to explain that. Nobody cares about the witch of indoor, okay? So nobody's asking that question. So let us not major in these minor things. There are tough things, Okay. But rather, if we read this, read the, that first word there, but, so don't get carried away with these things in verse 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Major in the major things. Remember that you are saved by grace. Remember that it was not you who brought you there. Remember it was not you who opened your eyes to understand what is to them a difficult text in the first place. Remember that it was God. That no matter how much you try to do for him, it was God. Remember that and be reminded of that and relish in that, in his goodness, in his beauty, in his honesty, in his love for you. Because when you, you major in that, other things begin to make sense. Now wait a minute. God, I know you are loving because I've experienced your love firsthand. I know where I was and I know where I am now and I know it wasn't me and I'm experiencing this firsthand and now I'm reading about head coverings or slavery and it seems like that's not you and suddenly because you major in the major things, the minor things begin to take focus. This is a big deal and Paul reminds us, major in those things. Don't get carried away with these other things. Can I just say a side note before, before I pray with you too? If you want to major in the minor things, um, I kind of already said this, but major in the minor things that the, the culture is asking. I think too often as Bible students, we get caught up um, in things that the culture is no longer asking. I mean, let, let's, let's, if you want to major in major, major things, know what you really believe about homosexuality. Know what you really believe about abortion. Know what you really believe about these things. Because that's the questions that the culture is asking. Um, if you have any other hard questions, you can see Jason Raber. He has Ricardo's cell phone number. He'll give it to you. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you so much for who you are. We are uh, grateful for, for all your goodness and all your love. Um, we know at the end of the day, it's, it's not us. And, and man, I, I just, I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would remind us to major in the major things. That we would, we would not get carried away with... Um, with, with silly doctrines, and, and, and maybe, maybe that's not the right way to say it, that we wouldn't get carried away with uh, things that in the end we can't know fully. So, so I pray, God, that you would continue to instill within us your grace, and how good it is, your love, and how good it is. Um, just very practical prayer. I, I, I pray for, for everyone in this room that, that um, it would start with knowing that, they, that we need to read our Bible, that we would not be apathetic in our approach to, to actually reading the Bible. Like, this is a big part. This is the foundation of our faith. Men have given their lives for it. We, we know cognitively it's important, but I pray our heart would understand the depths of how it changes us, the depths and beauty that it's uh, withheld in, in, uh, in its pages. We thank you so much for that. I pray, God, that, that we would rely on you as we read it, that we would know our place as we read it, that we would know that you are loving, that you are gracious, that you are so holy and so awesome. Thanks for tonight. I pray for every single person in here. We love you and praise you. In Jesus' name.
Amen.